This is Work Revolution, where we drop the boardroom speak and have real, candid conversations about what's going on in workplaces today and what needs to change in response to our changing world. When I graduated from university and started my career, it was around about in the mid-90s, and pay equity, employment equity, and affirmative action were all on the scene. They were relatively new things that were being rolled out with the promise of ending gender and racial inequality in the workplace, or at least that's what I thought was supposed to happen. Maybe that was somewhat naive. And here we are over 20 years later, and I'm asking myself and others, how much has really changed? And what's what's the holdup? To discuss this and much more is my guest, Michael Bach. Michael is the founder and CEO of the Canadian Center for Diversity and Inclusion, and author of Birds of All Feathers, Doing Diversity and Inclusion Right. Michael, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start with diversity and inclusion efforts in organizations. This is your area of expertise and the area that your organization does a, a lot of great work. And what struck me is, you know, I've been I feel like I've been hearing about this my entire career, which is going to span over over 20 years now. And yet I feel like we haven't really made a lot of progress in this. So let's just start with that. Like is change happening? What's been, why, why has it been so slow? Um, well, it's interesting. So some change has been happening and yet some hasn't. When we look at the advancement of women as an example, um, there has been glacial change um, of the company. By that you mean slow, right? Exactly. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Glaciers tend not to be very fast. Right. Okay. Uh, or at least in theory, they don't. <laughs> right. Um, uh, you know, one in 100 of the CEOs of the companies um, traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange is held by a woman, 1%. So we've seen, you know, incredibly slow progress with women. We've seen incredibly slow progress with people of color. In some instances though, like with the LGBTQ2 plus communities, we've seen significant change when you consider that when I started my career 30 years ago, um, it, you know, we were the pariah of uh, the country and there was no world in which we were to be openly LGBTQ2 plus. Um, but now we have, you know, openly gay members of parliament and ministers and CEOs and executives. Um, I think the the common denominator in that though is it's mostly amongst white men, cisgender white men. Right. Um, I think one of the reasons we ha- haven't seen progress as quickly as we would, I would like. Um, is the the approach that has been taken to this work has been um, very punitive. Uh, when you look at the Employment Equity Act, which is sort of the legislation in Canada that has driven the um, the movement around diversity and inclusion, or you look at the uh, affirmative action and, and the Civil Rights Act of, of 1963, um, you look at those and 
they're very punitive. It's sort of straight white able-bodied man has to lose in order for someone else to gain. And the problem with that is it's just demotivating of the people in power. Um, you know, if you look at those Toronto Stock Exchange and the companies, you know, it's not 99, but it's it's nearly 99, more than 90% are held by straight white able-bodied men. They're in the positions of power. They have to understand the motivation. They have to understand why this is important. Mm -hmm. Why, and not why is it important to society? That's not enough. What they need to understand is why is this important to them as individuals? Why is it important to their organizations and their ability to do business, their ability to perform? Um, if they don't understand those things, then they are either going to do nothing or actively work against the effort of change uh, because they, they have to understand what's in it for them. Maybe it's because I'm a woman, but that doesn't land great with me. You know, mm, I, I get, sure. I get really frustrated when I hear that. I, I think a lot of people, we, you know, this idea that you have to convince those people that what I would just consider doing the right thing very naively, obviously <laughs> is just um, they, that it has to be um, somehow in their own best self-interest. Yeah. And I think the fact that we have people who so many people in leadership and people and positions of power and influence who really do operate more in their own self-interest than they do with regard to what might be the greater good or a sense of purpose and meaning uh, beyond their own self-interest. I find that a little bit frustrating. And I think that that's part of the problem. If you can't look beyond your own self-interest, and this is where I sometimes get into, is there some, some self-work that needs to be done at that level mm -hmm. to start to expand your understanding and thinking and ex expand your empathy, expand your ability to, you know, see, see a world beyond your own. And that's part of the privilege though, right? Like that's mm -hmm. part of the privilege that they hold that they don't understand that they hold. I don't disagree. Okay. I would love. That's I would, good. Right. In the, in the <laughs> ideal world. Um, people would do the right thing. The problem with that statement, as I see it, is it, it assumes we all understand what the right thing to do is. It assumes we have this collective sense of morals and values. And we don't. Because if we did, we wouldn't have need for a justice system because no one would commit crime. We wouldn't have homelessness. We wouldn't have hunger. Because People would do the right thing for your fellow human. And, and unfortunately, for better or for worse, that's not the society that we live in. People are highly motivated by self-interest, even when people are sacrificing themselves for others. There is some self-interest in there. The way I look at it is a bit different. And, you know, I always jokingly say, I don't care how I get the horse to the water as long as I make them drink. So I look at this conversation and I say, what motivates you? You know, when I'm talking to a CEO or a C-suite executive in an organization, I look for what motivates them. And if what motivates them is profit, then okay, 
Here's how diversity and inclusion can positively impact your profit. If what motivates them is cost, um, if, if it's you know reducing the turnover, if who knows what their motivation is, but I'm gonna figure out how diversity and inclusion can be a means to the, an end, can be a means to a solution. It's not the solution itself, but it's a means to the solution, which um, changes the conversation and it starts to motivate people differently because they start to see being inclusive as the end goal, which can help them address whatever their self-interest is. Right. It also means that in doing so, ideally, we change the, the face of leadership. Mm-hmm. So we get more diversity of thought. We get more women and people of color and indigenous people, et cetera, into leadership positions which ultimately does bring in more empathy. Yeah. But we've got to, you know, get that to occur before we can see that change happen. There does need to be like this tipping point, it seems. Exactly. There needs to be a tipping point. And some of the conversations I've had with folks around this is that the, the way, and the way I look at it is that, you know, when we talk about Indigenous communities, people of color and women, they were, we were all left out of the build of what is around us. We're trying to, I I think of diversity inclusion, inclusion as an attempt to retrofit is what I call it, because we're trying to fit people into these structures that, you know, they weren't really part of, they're not like, you know, organizations are not designed for women's careers. Right. They're right. So they were designed for, men to have careers where someone was at home doing everything else. Mm -hmm. And, and, and now we're in a society where, you know, two people usually have to be working full steam to, to, uh, to, to, to have a house or to seem to raise a family and things like that. So, um, so you're, it's kind of, I, I, I've been referring to it as we need a, a, you know, a big renovation of the thing so that we can, you know, it can be designed better f- to be inclusive. And I think if, if we had, I actually, I, I had this conversation with my, my kids a little while back and I, I said to them, what do you think it would look like? Like, what do you think our society would look like if, you know, and I'm not, my history is not perfect, but back in the olden days, I'll call it, <laughs> um, you know, when, it, when uh, you know, Europeans started to arrive here, on this land, if our history had unfolded from there in a way that was totally inclusive from day one, where indigenous communities, people of color, women were all equal and were all part of the build, would anything around us look the same as it does today? And I think the answer is a resounding no, it would be totally different. And therefore, that's why I, I feel like it is possible to have people in leadership roles that are not totally motivated by self-interest. I just think we have a lot of the wrong people in there because the competition hasn't been that tight. Well, I also think we're, it's, it's how we're rewarded. Yes. I, I was reading an article this morning, and I, I'm not going to get the numbers correct, but some um, long-term health uh, care organization received, you know, $150 million in supports during COVID and paid their shareholders $74 million. Right. Well, that's the wrong motivation. 
but we're motivated by money. Yeah. We are rewarded by money. CEOs uh, are, you know, and, and I keep mentioning CEOs, but I would also say in nonprofit organizations, in public sector organizations, it's the same model, money in, money out. And a CEO or a, a deputy minister, a, a executive director, they are um, rewarded based on a very narrow sort of set of judgments around performance how much money you got to come into the organization and how little money went out of the organization. And how much did you do with that money? Um, so the reward, we're, we're only motivated by the money. It's the only reward. Yeah. I'm not saying that's right. Not even close. It's part of the problem. But it is absolutely part of the problem. Yeah. Um, and in an ideal world, we would change our motivations. I, I know in a, you know, in a previous lifetime, um, I worked for a, a big uh, professional services firm and I remember having conversations with women who we were trying to get into the partnership so that we could diversify the partnership. And they said point blank, what's, you know, I'm not motivated by the money. What else is there for me? And truthfully, there was nothing else. There was no other benefit for them to become a partner. Yeah. More pressure, more risk, more stress, more demand, money. And then the downside of is a sacrifice potentially at home. Totally. Totally. And so what we want is people who are motivated by the work. Ideally. Ideally, we want people who are motivated because they're passionate about the work and what they can bring to it and what they want. And so, so the irony of engagement is just resounding to me here, because on the one hand, we have up to 70% disengagement, which is alarming. I call it the zombie apocalypse, like actually 70% of our workforce is going to work every day going, "Eh, yeah, now I'm going to look for another job for part of the day. I'm my boss is an asshole, whatever it is. Right. Um, and yet you just spoke to why that is, you know, that's a big piece of it. We we were saying we want people super engaged. Well, guess what? You're, You're not structuring it that way. You're not rewarding the right, you're not hiring the right people. You're not rewarding and motivating them the right way. Totally. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about systemic issues. I wanted to get yes. into that because I, I I want to just um, dig into understanding that a little better. I think this is something we hear a lot about, but like, what does that really mean? And what does it look like? I think for someone in an organization, an HR department or leadership, okay, we've got we've got a diversity problem. Maybe there's systemic barriers, but what are they? How do we figure out what they are? Yeah. Well, our society was built on a model that honestly is not terribly inclusive. It wasn't designed for everyone. It was designed for wealthy white people, said as a moderately wealthy white person. Um, And I, you know, there's lots of examples of systemic racism, systemic and institutional discrimination Um, And I I think it's really important to differentiate between the individual acts of racism and discrimination 
versus the systems. Individual act is me, you know, calling you a sexist name. Um, a system of racism, a system of discrimination would be that uh, the majority of jobs function on a nine to five Monday to Friday model and schools function on the same time frame. Um, we're asking people to do two things at once. This is a system, you know, workplaces were not designed for women. They were designed, as you've said, for men who had a stay-at-home spouse. Mm -hmm. and I, I've been using a few examples of late um, that kind of articulate the example that, you know, that the, they illustrate well the sort of concepts here. So every university in the country has um, an English department. They also have a languages department. Now, at last check, English was a language. <laughs> um, so why then is English not part of the languages department? Because historically, English was the dominant preferred acceptable language. The message to everybody who doesn't have English as a first language is, and this is not necessarily deliberate, but it is the message, is that somehow your language is not as valuable. It's just not as, as important. Yeah. Similarly, universities have a classics department. So what's included under classics? Greek and Roman. That's it. Right. What about... African history, or I don't know, Chinese history, something from Latin America. Like there's a lot more than the Greco-Roman empires. Right. But they are not considered a part of classics. Mm -hmm. There may be a special program on, you know, Chinese history mm -hmm. or African history, and there's nothing on African history, but, um, and that's not to say there is an African history. It's just to say it's kind of ignored. Mm -hmm. um, that is a system of racism. It sends a message. Mm -hmm. Another example would be statues of Johnny McDonald. I mean, there's a statue of Johnny McDonald in every street corner in this country. Okay, he was a first prime minister. Go Johnny, you did a good job. He was also one of the architects of the residential school system. Yeah. So in putting up a statue of Johnny McDonald, we are reminding indigenous people of a really bad history that this country has related to the treatment of its first people. That we, our ancestors, and mine specifically, my people have been on this continent for 200 plus years. We committed genocide. Um, and I'm not using that term lightly and I'm not trying to be dramatic. It's what we did. So putting up a statue of John A. McDonald is a reminder of that. I'm not suggesting we need, we're trying to rewrite history and taking down those statues. But what I am saying is we don't need to celebrate it. 
Right. We don't need to have his bloody statue everywhere. There are some other people we could celebrate, like Louis Riel. Why not? Yeah. I, I think there are lots of examples of these systems that are in place that we sort of say, well, this is how we do it. That in and of itself, the way they function are exclusionary to people. Uh, and I'll give one last example. Um, we talk about universities and I'm not picking on universities. They're just an easy target for me right now. Um, we have a hierarchy for universities. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you go to McGill, University of Toronto, University of Calgary, UBC, those are kind of the upper echelon, Dalhousie. Queens. Queens. These are the Western. These are the hoi polloi, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what if you go to the University of Northern uh, uh, of Northern British Columbia, UNBC, Thompson Rivers University, mm-hmm. uh, Lakehead. Um, there's a long list of universities that are viewed as less than somehow. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, once you get your degree, no one asks you what your grade was. That doesn't follow you around. There's some instances where you start off, like, you know, if you go into law, you go into accounting, they're going to ask for your grades part of that process. But once you've been called to the bar, or you get your CPA, that's it. No one knows if you were a D student or an A student. And frankly, no one cares. So if I got a you know, a a business degree at at UBC and I scraped by, whereas I got a business degree from UNBC and I was the valedictorian and I got the highest grade, you know, I got a 98%. No one knows the difference, but we judge the schools differently. Now, the difference being that at UNBC, you'd have a higher percentage of indigenous kids. So that system of racism where we apply this hierarchy to universities Mm -hmm. means that we are inadvertently discriminating against a group of students because of a perception that the school is somehow better. And there is no world in which you're going to tell me that uh, UNBC is somehow worse or better than UBC. The difference is geography. Yeah. And you're right, and, and privilege, right? Because those 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 yeah. schools will attract more. You know, they tend to be. Not everybody can travel. I mean, you know, I think about my husband's family. They were very, very fortunate, and him and his sister were able to go to universities that were a flight away in opposite directions right. from where they grew up. Well, that's a really privileged thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, not not Absolutely. everybody could do that. Not every not everybody has the same the same options. And speaking of access, you and I spoke about this before, also the same role models, the same supports in their home, in their community, and these things perpetuate over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also the thing about perception is really, really important. And this is, this is, I think, what's so important about just helping people understand these, these barriers and systemic issues um, and really cracking into the, 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 the you know, mostly white folks who are in positions of power and influence. I'll tell you a quick story. So I was with a, uh, some friends uh, over the summer 
having a conversation with one of my friends and he was saying, uh, talking about uh, applicants for uh, some opportunities uh, in the organization he works in and how these, you know, these young people were coming in, they're so intense about it. And they, you know, they're so intense about getting a job. And part of his thinking was, he's like, you know, geez, like, you know, you just graduated. Why not take a year to travel? Like, what's the big rush? At, you know, at, thinking back to maybe his days after graduating university and what was what were his priorities and what he was able to do. And I said, well, maybe they need the money. And he said, no, I don't think so. They come from good families. <laughs> now I love my friend. He's a very lovely person. And I, and I don't think those words even coming out of his own mouth fully resonated with him, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's where we're at, where we have a lot of people have certain stuff in their mind and in their belief system that they haven't really deconstructed and analyzed very much. And but it really struck me because I thought, well, geez, like I came from a good family, but I wasn't able to do that. I had to go get a bloody job to pay all, all the debt that I accumulated from going through university, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's a that's the privilege, right? You don't, Yeah. If you, if you have the privilege of taking a year off and going traveling because mommy and daddy are footing the bill, then you think everyone has that option. Yeah. Or you think well, as people say, well, you could work as you go, but still, yeah, it's just, it's still, but this idea of good people who come from good families Right. Are that, probably the, people who went to university, had certain um had certain privileges, had and also, you know, and I, I mentioned this to you earlier, it gets into your own individual mindset, right? Uh, when you don't grow up with supports and role models, and I can relate to this even just growing up, you know, as a woman, um and Comparing it to, so I'm in my very early, very, very early 50s, barely, <laughs> barely 50. It's not even worth mentioning. It's, it's not. It's I, I look way younger, by the way. Basically 40. Trust me, I look way younger. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, you know, a grow, if I was growing up today, I think I, I would just have a different mindset and I, I would see so many more role models around me that I just didn't grow up with. And it wasn't a you know, it's only now that I've started to realize how much that got into my own thinking and my own mindset about what I was going to be capable of or what my options are going to be. So for someone growing up in a, in a Northern Indigenous community, um, where, as you mentioned earlier, only 25% of students, roughly at roundabout, graduate high school, you know, the, they don't see the possibilities for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, they don't have the supports. Yeah. And it, it's 25% of Indigenous kids across the country. Okay, sorry. Yep. So, no, not at all. And it's, you know, so 50% of Indigenous kids don't graduate grade eight. Uh, of those that do, 50% don't graduate high school. Um, and that's not to say that 25% end up in post-secondary. It's to say that they graduate high school. Right. Um, part of the problem and the biggest problem is having the supports around them that tell them to do more, that encourage them to do more. Mm -hmm. So it's, in, you know, if mom and or dad or however their family structure is, if they didn't graduate high school or let alone um, elementary school, 
then they won't necessarily feel the need to to encourage their child to, to go further and they won't necessarily have the ability to support them. Yeah. You know, my mother graduated high school, she graduated university, you know, I was it was expected of me to go to university, not college. College was not something we talked about. Back then college was very much looked down upon. Um and and I like you am am just I can see my fifties from, from my backyard. (laughs) Um, But it was like, I had all the supports in place to get me into university. Whereas other kids would not necessarily have that. And if you don't have those supports and I'm not just talking about financial, I'm also talking about just emotional, mental, the encouragement. Yeah. And we do see a higher percentage of this happening in marginalized communities. So it perpetuates this this inequity in society. And education is the key to everything. We need to have, you know, post-secondary education. We talked about this. They talk about this in the the U.S. election quite a bit recently about um, the voters who were uh, what had post-secondary education and those that didn't. And I said to, to my husband, I said, you know, if I was Biden, I'd be making university free. I'd immediately get everybody educated because notoriously, the more educated they are, the more likely they are to vote Democrat. Now, I just gave away my political leanings. Um, you know, those, but those infrastructures, in, if they're not in place, it's really hard for kids to succeed, which again, perpetuates the cycle. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. And I, I think that um, I've been a close observer, uh, particularly of the situation in the United States. Um, I mean, I'm a political junkie anyways, but for me, it's not even about politics. It's about human behavior mm. and understanding logical sequences of human behavior once they've shown you who they are. And you're right. This education piece is so critically important. Um, as I, I think I'm going to do a whole show around what I've learned from observing the political situation in the United States <laughs> the past few years. Um, Cause I've learned a lot. I have to say, um, I want to switch it back to work stuff. So, yeah. so um, because I deeply concerned about these greater societal issues. I hope solutions are on the horizon and, and, and unfolding. I, um, because that's a big problem when employers are going to go, well, you know, that's, that's not something they maybe see themselves. Although I don't necessarily agree. I think there's probably a role that some could play, but um attracting more diversity into the organization. Now I spend a lot of time working with people who professionals and leaders who are either trying to make a career change. They've been impacted by job loss. Um, so they're, you know, uh, we're talking about career and, and job search a great deal. And so I have a pretty good understanding of the impact of hiring and selection processes on people. And all I can say is it seems to be a total shit show. I mean, these applicant tracking systems, I don't, yeah. I don't see how they're working for anybody, really. I don't even think they're helping. They're not helping identify the best talent, no. as far as I can tell, other than just make life easy, I guess, for people. Yeah. 
you know? Um, and it's a really, really demoralizing, I would say, process as a job seeker and an applicant. And I actually, you know, most of the work I do with people is to try to help them circumvent that whole process, utilizing their network, utilize, you know, getting connected to the right people and, uh, you know, just doing everything to try and get around that and find other avenues to get a foot in the door. So, but what we hear also from organizations often is, well, we just don't seem to be a, we're, we're trying to be diverse, but mm -hmm. we don't seem to be attracting diverse applicants. So what, what do you say on that? Well, I think the best, the, the most important question is how do you know? The vast majority of the employers as part of their application process, and I'm with you on the applicant tracking systems, I think they're a bit of a gong show, um, but they, they don't ask the questions about identity as part of the process for a variety of reasons. Largely, they're afraid that it'll somehow come back to bite them, that there'll be a human rights complaint filed because someone didn't get an interview because they're a person of color, because they live with a disability, et cetera. Um, if you're not asking the questions though, how do you know if you're getting a diverse pool of talent? Mm -hmm. And then you then have to extrapolate out and ask the same questions or at least track the data throughout the process. So, you know, like what is, you know, let's say I post a job and I get a hundred applicants. I'm just going to make up some numbers because of course that hundred would probably be 500. But um, so let's say I post a job and I get a hundred applicants. Statistically speaking, depending on the profession, and that's a, a very big differentiator. Statistically speaking though, I should get it. 50% should be from males and 50% from females, speaking about biological sex only. So then who gets screened in? Who then gets an interview? Uh, and who makes it through the process to the point of hire? Statistically speaking, the demographics of the applicant pool should follow through because of course there's no indicator that a person's ability is somehow uh, affected by their sex, their ethnicity, et cetera. But if you're not tracking, how do you know? Mm -hmm. And the first step is just to start with anonymous surveying of the applicants to say, thanks for applying for the job. Now we'd love to know, you know your demographics and this isn't connected to the job, but it would really help us. And then you look at that data and say, oh, wait, yeah, we are missing out. We aren't getting women applying. We aren't getting people of color or people with disabilities, indigenous people, et cetera. And then you're able to say, okay, we need to do a better job of attracting these groups into the organization because for whatever reason, and there are probably a litany of reasons, we're not attracting them. But I suspect that most would find that the applicants are there and they're just getting screened out because maybe their name is too difficult to pronounce, or maybe you don't understand the school that they went to, or the ATS, bless its you know, digital heart, um, screened, has bias, has bias yeah. and screened a person out for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, and the a ATS is notoriously screened people out. The, I, I agree with you. I think they're a gong show. I think the, 
Um, the only thing that they benefit is that they save time. Because like I said, for every job you post, you're getting 500 applicants. You're getting 1,000 applicants. You can't go through 1,000 resumes. It's just not possible. But the question is, are you picking, you know, are you getting the best applicants? Or are you getting the ones that understand how keywords work and that are putting those keywords into their cover letter and into their resume so that they get screened in. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a game at that point, in which case you're not getting the best and the brightest. You're getting the ones that know the rules. Right. And maybe have the benefit of help. Yes. Right. Like again, again, that speaks to mentorship. It speaks to your supports. It's like people like me. You know, people, totally. you know, not everybody gets to work with a professional to help them do these kinds of things no. and, and manipulate the system. Yes. And manipulate the system. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That's what I'm trying to do. We had to manipulate the system. Um, yeah, no, it's so true. So, so we get into this, this self-perpetuating and, you know, there, I'm not going to remember the details of this. I'll have to go back and look at, but there was a study done, um, an organization did some did a study. They, they were not attracting hardly any female applicants to a certain type of a very male dominated role within the organization. Yeah. And then they uh, they did some research and they realized if they changed the wording and the language yeah. in the job posting, somehow that change in and of itself. So there was language in the job posting where women were self selecting out. Yeah, 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 and we we've gone through that too, yeah. uh, where we reviewed job postings and and uh, it's language that tends to be more aggressive attracts men, uh, aggressive and independent, and language that uh, is more collaborative and collectivist attracts women. Um, and I went through the same thing in my organization where we we were getting a whole lot of men and not a lot of women. We changed the language. Um, you know, we're easily seventy percent women now. Um, and you know, I think any imbalance is bad, but those are some of the simple things that you can do to change who's applying for jobs. Um, just simply having a statement at the bottom of the job posting that says that we're an equal opportunity employer is not changing who's applying for jobs. Right. Yeah. It's a complex thing. And this is where I think that HR data, HR, like people analytics really has a really strong role to play in terms of really giving, putting good information in the hands of people and organizations so that they can really start to understand what's going on here. Very much so. Yeah. Um, Anything else you want employers to know? I wrote a book. Yes. Tell us a bit about that. I wrote a book. It's called Birds of All Feathers, Doing Diversity and Inclusion Right. It is an employer's guide to how to do diversity and inclusion right in their organizations. You know, it's I, it's a quick read. Um, if you're listening to it on Audible, it takes five and a half hours to listen to it. Oh, <laughs> the dulcet tones of Michael Bach reading a, a book to you. Um, you know, I wrote something that I, was very much intended as a how-to guide for employers that you don't need to hire a fancy consultant, although there's nothing wrong with fancy consultants. Um, but if you just read this book, you should be able to figure it out on your own. So they can pick it up, uh, at my website at michaelbach.com or uh, wherever they buy books. And I hope they enjoy. Great. Thank you for doing this, Michael. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Deborah. Thank you for listening. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, please tell your friends and colleagues as well as rate and review the show. You can get in touch with me at deborah at workrevolution.ca, and I'd love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. Also, please follow on Instagram at work underscore revolution. Until next time.